counties with news, information, ideas, events, goods, and services on newsstands Thursdays and on the web at waldo.villagesoup.com. From the music of the founder of Bluegrass Music, that's Bill Monroe, to the very latest contemporary bluegrass, Brownswound brings all varieties of bluegrass music to you. Hosted by Darwin Davidson, with lots of help from Karen Mulford, Marilyn Ryan, Paul Anderson, and other hosts, it all happens every Thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m. right here on Community Radio. That's WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. We look forward to seeing you every Thursday. WERU is made possible by the generous support of our listeners. Thank you. And we're coming up to the hour of 10 o'clock, which is Let's Talk Animals Time. Before that, let me give you a quick look at the weekend ahead. Winter Pledge Drive, Saturday, February 24th through Saturday, March 3rd. Support WERU programming that you enjoy and value. Especially encourage you to become a new WERU member if you've never joined before, or even if you haven't lapsed. Come on back, folks. Sustaining members are also very, very much appreciated. Give us a chance this weekend. Get involved with a winter pledge drive. Now, stay tuned for Let's Talk Animals, everything from aardvarks to zebras with Dr. John Hunt. Good morning, this is Dr. John Hunt for Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras. We are live today, so I want my listeners to call in at 469-0500 at WERU station here. And this is our once a month show every fourth Thursday at 10 o'clock. And I try to pick topics that are uh, of interest to everybody. This one may seem kind of odd, but I think by the end of the hour, you're going to uh, understand why uh, we're going to be talking about the rusty-patched bumblebee. Talk about bumblebees. And um, today, my expert on the rusty-patched bumblebee is Dr. Mark McCullough from the Craigbrook uh, Fish Hatchery. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, John. We're going to call each other by first names right off because uh, it's real casual around here. So um, Mark is a very busy man. It, it took a while to get him scheduled here. Uh, so I really appreciate your your time. Yeah, it's great to be here this morning. Good. So the first thing I, t- I ask all of my uh, guests is to explain to how you explain to us how you got here from there, kind of who you are and, and where you work. And sure, John. So I'm a wildlife biologist for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And my entire career here in Maine has dealt with endangered species. So I came to Maine uh, in 1979 from Pennsylvania to go to graduate school, and I've never left. So I've been here almost 38, 39 years, and I did my master's degree at the University of Maine on studying shorebirds down in Cobscook Bay. I did my doctoral degree studying bald eagles here in the state of Maine back when they were an endangered species. And I worked uh, for 13 years for Maine Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife and led their endangered species program for a few years. And then I've worked for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service as an endangered species biologist for about the last 16 years. How did you get to Craigbrook? Well, Craigbrook uh, Fish Hatchery is a federal facility, and it happens to be where our ecological services field office is located. So I work with a small group of people of about seven or eight biologists, and, and we do sort of the full uh, A to Z of what Fish and Wildlife Service does um, related to endangered species and Federal Energy Regulatory Commission relicensing of dams and working with landowners. So we have biologists that work on all of those types of things. So when you're working with uh, landowners and companies and, and such, it's because they're trying to clear their projects 
make sure nothing is being damaged permanently for endangered species? Yeah, we have a number of different hats and roles that, that we play, and one of those is regulatory. The Endangered Species Act requires that any time there's any federal funding spent in Maine or a, a federal permit that's issued, that that has to be reviewed and, and the federal agencies have to consult with the Fish and Wildlife Service. So that's a big part of what we do. Um, but we also try to... to um, to initiate projects to recover listed species, so actually get out there and work with landowners or work with the university to get a better understanding of the needs of some of our listed species and uh, and to try to do things to recover them like we've done with the bald eagle here in Maine. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll have you come back again for the bald, uh, bald eagle talk. Yeah, that'd be wonderful. Good, good. Uh, but today, uh, the Fish and Wildlife um, people for the first time uh, designated an insect as an endangered species. Is that right? Well, we've actually designated other insects, John, butterflies and dragonflies. So what's what's unique about the rusty patch bumblebee is it's the first bumblebee that okay. the Fish and Wildlife Service has ever listed. We listed a couple of other native bees to the island of Hawaii, but, um, but never uh, a bumblebee here in, in the United States. Wow, that's uh, that's pretty special. Yeah, so this all happened almost a year ago. Uh, last March is when uh, the species was officially added as an endangered species on our federal list. So we're going to – I'm very logically minded, so we're going to kind of go through the rusty patch of what, who they are, what they do, how they live, and then we'll get into <clears throat> why we are not seeing them and then how we're going to get them back. Uh, so the first thing is, is what is what is a bumblebee per se and how they look and how they behave, how many species. And then I want you to get into exactly how a – what a rusty patch looks like. Okay. Well, if you ask a, a, a person in first grade to draw a bee, chances are they'll draw a big fuzzy bumblebee. Uh-huh. So I think we all know what bumblebees are. We see them around our yards. Uh, pollinating flowers, visiting flowers in our gardens and, and the dandelions in our yard all summer long. And uh, they're, they're a, a, a part of the, a larger group of, of animals and, or bees in, in the order Hymenoptera. And then uh, and, and the family is Apidae. And so all of the bees that we have here in Maine are in that family, including the bumblebees. And a lot of folks don't realize, I mean, we all think about bumblebees, honeybees, if you're asked about bees, but we actually in Maine know of about 275 different species of native bees that we have here in in the state. 17 of those are bumblebees. So we have many, many, many species. Some of the native bees we have are solitary. Others are colonial. Some are tiny. Some are large, like the bumblebees. Um, But they're a fascinating group of animals and an important group of animals to us, um, especially here in the state of Maine where we have crops like blueberries that need to be pollinated. These bees are out there doing that work for us every spring. We'll talk about that, that pollination because their life cycle is interesting in terms of a time of year. <clears throat> I'll get into that in a minute. So there's uh, how many species of bumblebees? There's 47 species in North America and 17 species that have been recorded in Maine. And is the rusty patch the only one that's in danger in Maine? Actually not. Um, the rusty patch bumblebee is certainly one that's on the list, but there are other bumblebees in Maine that may be as in trouble as the rusty patch bumblebee or even worse off as the rusty patch bumblebee. For example, there's one species of bumblebee, the Ashton's cuckoo bumblebee, which is a parasite of only the rusty patch bumblebee. So yeah. if the rusty patch bumblebee declines and disappears, certainly the Ashton's cuckoo bumblebee would do the same. Um, But we have about five or six or seven of these 17 species that we have in Maine that seem to be extremely rare at this point in time. So why did the rusty patch get all the glory? (laughs) Well, it's nice that at least one of them got listed and, and that 
you know, it's raised a lot of awareness about conservation of our native bees and bumblebees in particular. So perhaps the conservation work that we're doing for the rusty patch bumblebee will carry over to some of these other species of bumblebees and, and help them as well. So the the ecology of the, of all the bumblebee species may be close enough that whatever we do to help the rusty patch will also help in terms of habitat uh, and plants and that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly, especially addressing the factors that might be uh, stressing or these bees or, or causing their decline. So, um, yeah, that's the concept anyway. Okay. So the, uh, the rusty patch is easy to identify or you really have to kind of uh, – is it look like a typical bumblebee that the first grader draws – Except that little spot on the top, or yeah, it actually is one of the easier bumblebees uh, to identify in Maine if you know what characteristics to look for. And a year ago, I didn't know much about how to identify bumblebees, and I'm still learning. But it gets its name because it has these two little rusty patches. I like to call them saddlebags on the back of its abdomen. So there's a yellow stripe that goes across its abdomen, and there's these two little rusty patches that look like little rusty orange-colored spots on on there. So if you see that bee... um, it's identifiable. In Maine, we have another bee called the tricolored bumblebee, which is turning out to be the most abundant bumblebee that we have in Maine. And it has a contiguous orange stripe across its abdomen, very, very prominent. Instead of saddlebags. Yeah. So uh, it has a really bright orange patch that goes the whole way across the abdomen. And a lot of people are calling us up and saying, hey, I saw a rusty patch bumblebee in my yard last uh, week or whatever. And and chances are they're looking at a tricolored or we sometimes call them orange-banded bumblebees. So the saddlebags are on the abdomen, not over between the the wings. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we're looking at – we're cheating here. Yeah, we're 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 looking looking at pictures. pictures, (laughs) But these are the little orange patches that are on, on the abdomen. So those orange patches are kind of high up on the abdomen. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Closer. So when you, yeah. Closer so when, to where the wings okay. come out from the That's body. What I wanted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's su- there's such you know when I tell when I told some of my friends that talking about bumblebees there's there's such docile nice bees. I mean they really don't bother you. They make a noise that kind of startle you. But when they're feeding on flowers, you can go right you can walk right up to them as long as you don't bother them. They they don't care. So you you can you may be able to identify some of these bees without getting hurt. Yeah, I, I you, you don't want to pick them up because yeah. they they the workers all do have a stinger just like honeybees do and they will sting you if you handle them. Um, if you know enough about bumblebees, you can identify drones, which are the males that come out later in the summer and you can handle them all you want. They don't have stingers. But um But is this like uh, mushrooms, you really have to know. Right. Yeah, <laughs> Just don't not, eat any mushroom. I'm, I'm not quite up. there yet. Okay. Yeah. If you're not there yet, yeah. I'm not going to be there. Yeah, but I know a couple people in Maine that know their bees well enough that they can say that's a drone and they can pick it up. But at any rate, uh, bumblebees are not aggressive. Uh, I've never been stung by one. I've Me been, neither. I've been stung by honeybees many times. I've kept honeybees, and, and you do get stung when you're working with bees. But um, bumblebees, there's there's... They're just good little yeah. critters to have around. They're out there very diligently pollinating from dawn till dusk. Well, let's talk about the life cycle. Let's start uh, in about a couple of weeks uh, from the, the mated female queen. So start from there. We'll kind of, as you're going through the year, uh, I may interject and ask questions about different parts of, of their life. So okay. what happens in the spring? Yeah, so, well, maybe we'll start right now in February. Right now, under the snow, underground, uh, deep underground, are queens that emerged last, uh, late last summer and uh, mated with uh, males, which we call drones. And so they're just underground uh, waiting for spring to occur. And... Uh, and they're in a in a condition we call diapause, and they're just inactive and waiting for the weather to warm. 
so when spring comes uh, in mid-April, when temperatures are warming into the 50s and 60s, uh, the bees, uh, these queen bees, will emerge. So the first bumblebees that you see in the spring, in April and May, will all be queens, and they'll be larger bees. They're they're physically larger than the workers. Um, but if you go to a blueberry barren or you're looking in your yard and in May when the plants are just starting to flower, you're looking at all queen bumblebees at that time of year. Did, um, did you mention what gets what gets them mobilized? Is it is it the temperature of the ground? Is it had they had they figured out what it is that gets them to to come out of the ground? I don't know that they know that, but I would guess that it's temperature. It could be also water that's melting and coming down through the soil. They typically are in chipmunk burrows or mouse burrows or as deep underground as they can get in the wintertime to be probably below the frost line uh, so that they can survive through the winter. Do they, I read someplace that they, they may cover themselves with something. Is that yeah, they they'll get in amongst uh, you know whatever detritus is down underground and and uh, and try to keep warm. Another interesting thing about bumblebees is is they're sort of warm blooded. They can uh, exercise their wing muscles and actually increase their body temperatures. So those first cooler days of spring don't bother bumblebees. They can be out flying around and, and they'll actually warm themselves up if they uh-huh. if they need to. And then later in the spring, once they've built up their energy reserves and, and uh, start a nest of their own or colony of their own, the female, the queen, will actually uh, brood the eggs that she lays by by vibrating her wings and keeping those eggs warm underground um, in her colony, just like a bird would. So they're 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 not warm blooded in the same way that mammals or birds are and, and maintain a constant temperature like that. But they can warm themselves up and they can fly in some pretty cool, uh, wet without days without without problem. So these these uh, mated queens come out of their their hibernation, or they call it diapause, mm-hmm. just kind of like a, a not true hibernation. It's a quiet time. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, we won't get into that at this point. And now they're coming out at a time where the only food around are the early like forest floor flowers. Yeah. Basically, and some which of is the important. and some of the flowering trees, so some of the first flowers we have in the spring are red maples that are blooming, uh, are maples then followed by some of the other trees, the dogwoods and and uh, willows. And so they're probably feeding on those. And that's before other bees are out. Right. right? They're the first ones out. Yeah. Okay. So they in that they can maintain a warmer body temperature. They can be out foraging even as low as 45 degrees. And so folks who own blueberry barrens really like to have native colonies of bumblebees nearby because they can pollinate blueberries and they're experts at pollinating blueberries as um, on the coolest of days, whereas honeybees won't come out until it's 65 degrees. And yeah. so on a cool spring, Fair weather. late May <laughs> day, yeah, you can you can stand and watch the bumblebees pollinating the blueberries and, and hardly any um, honeybees to be seen. Now they have a, a short tongue, right? So that limits them in terms of plants. So the tree, the tree flowers are small, mm-hmm. the blueberries. So is that why they'll pick certain, I mean, the evolution of it? But they can't get some of the deeper flowers, right? Well, they can't, no. And the rusty patch bumblebee and the yellow-banded bumblebee in Maine are what's called uh, – they're, they're a group of – a subgroup of bumblebees called short-tongued bumblebees. And as you can imagine, there's long-tongued ones as well. But what's fascinating about bumblebees is they don't necessarily need to use their tongue to pollinate and uh, and and gather pollen to take back to their colonies. So the way that bumblebees pollinate 
blueberries and some other flowers is this process called buzz pollination. So they'll grasp the bottom of a blueberry flower, hold on, and then they vibrate their wing muscles at just the right frequency to cause the plant to release its pollen. And it has to be just the perfect frequency. Each flower has a certain frequency, and bumblebees know this. And so they do this, it's called sonification, but also buzz pollination. And all they're showered with the, the pollen, and they gather up as much as they can in their pollen baskets on their hind legs. And then they move on to the next flower and do that over and over uh, a thousand times in a day. So showered means when they shake the, the flower... It showers on their hairs? All over their bodies, and they can right. they themselves? With, right. And then okay. they have these specialized baskets on one of their hind legs that they smooth over and gather that pollen. And if you see a bumblebee or, or a honeybee um, gathering pollen, they have these big orange balls of pollen on that. one of their hind legs. Yeah. And what they're doing is gathering that up in that pollen basket to take back to their colony because that's an important source of protein for the developing uh, queen or, or the developing queens and the developing workers that they have back in their colony. So our, our newly, um, not hatched queen, newly the new queen coming out in the spring, I can't, coming out of their, their little hole there, uh, the first thing they do is they gather food. Right. And now they're going to look for a nest. And where, what kind of nesting areas do they like? So a queen, uh, rusty patch bumblebee or any of our bumblebees will start cruising around looking for food and, and, get, and gathering her energy sources. And then uh, they actually have the ability to detect mouse urine. And they're actually oh looking God. for uh, mouse burrows or chipmunk burrows. Uh, some pl- type of underground burrow that they can they can take over as their own and and create a space for their colony. I mean, inhabited. They're inhabited, or sometimes they, they do share it with with the mouse or the chipmunk, and other times it may be an old burrow that's okay. not being used. But they can detect the urine. Yes, old or new. Yeah, so wow, that's so be, the the bees actually focus on that in the spring, and when once she finds a colony site and she's gathered up her energy reserves, then she goes underground in that burrow and and never emerges really again for the rest of the summer. She may uh, on an occasion life. or two. But her her job from that point forward is laying eggs to create a colony of, of worker bees. And uh, though that colony grows in size over the summer. And actually, rusty patch bumblebees have one of the larger colony sizes of any of our native bumblebees. It can be upwards of 500 to 1,000 workers. That's what I read, which is kind of unusual. Most of the bumblebees I remember... Uh, reading about that they were very small right. colonies. So this is one of the few bumblebees that have huge colonies. Yeah. That'd be kind of scary seeing a thousand bumblebees in one spot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I don't mind be. one at a time. Yeah. And, <laughs> and bumblebee colonies are rarely found. You might be cleaning out a wood pile, uh, a stack of old firewood and find a bumblebee colony. Maybe one forms under some stacks of old garbage or something in a shed, but they're rarely seen. Um, so they're usually underground and, and uh, most people have never – I've never seen a bumblebee colony, but I know of some folks in Maine who have found them. Well, any listeners out there find found any uh, – please give us a ring at uh, 469-0500. We're here live with Dr. Mark McCullough. Who we're talking about the, the endangered rusty patch bumblebee. This first part of the show, we're talking about – the bumblebee's biology, then we'll get into why they disappeared. Uh, we're still working on the life cycle and we'll get into habitat. Uh, so the, so once the she starts laying eggs, the eggs hatch out to workers. Now the workers are going to work. And right. What are the things, there's two or three things at their job. What are, what are the workers' jobs? Yeah, so uh, as their name implies, uh their job is to go gather pollen and nectar to bring back to the colony to not only feed the queen but also to feed all of the young 
developing generations of workers. So there's multiple generations of worker bees throughout the summer. And and an individual worker, and they're all female, um, may only live two or three weeks. So there's a constant turnover of new workers throughout the summertime. And so we see the first worker bumblebees about the 1st of June. And then their colonies build up in size throughout the summer into June, July. And as we near the end of summer, then the queen starts to lay eggs that are not fertilized that will end up being the males or the drones and um, start to see them developing in August. She also starts to lay uh, some eggs that will become the new future queens for next year. And they have a name called Gynes, G-Y-N-E-S. And so there'll be multiple new queens that are created in late summer. How many out of a, a let's say, colony 500? Yeah, I would think that on the order of 10 to 20 uh, uh, queens would be produced. And they leave the colony and they meet up with drones, hopefully drones from another colony. So there's not inbreeding going on. And uh, they'll they'll, uh, mate. And then the queen, these new queens called gynes, sort of uh, repeat the whole process. In the fall, early fall, they find a chipmunk burrow or mouse burrow or someplace to get deep underground, and then they just spend uh, from October through through uh, April in that diapause condition. And the rest of the <clears throat> the rest of the uh, nest dies. Right. So everyone, the, everyone dies. So the queen dies from the uh, from that summer, and all of the workers die after we get a couple of frosts, and that's it for them. But they're pollinating and they're they're working on plants well into fall. Right. Again, they so they're one of the earliest one uh, insects to pollinate, and one of the latest ones. Yeah. So that's very important ecologically. Yeah. So one of the things I'm doing in my yard is planting as many New England asters as I can. It's one of our last flowering wildflowers we have in Maine. And it's just fascinating in in September and October, sometimes there's so many bumblebees on the New England asters that they're just causing the plant to droop over. So they're really trying to get that last uh, little bit of of, uh, nectar before the winter comes. I'd love to see that. So now are those the the mated queens, the the late late fall? Are they the mated queens? Yeah, there'll be a combination of everything. So in, in... by September, on my wildflowers, you can see some of those gynes, those mated queens. You can see the drones, and you can see the last of the workers from the summer. So it just kind of slowly turns over. So by October, November, the workers are dying off. Right. And you won't see as many. Okay. Yeah. So sometimes in in late fall, it's cold and you're starting to get frost and the bees will just not even return to the colony. They'll cling to the flower overnight. And uh, and if you have a frost that night, that might be the end of them. Okay. So uh, then, then it starts over again. Right. Uh, now the, the queen in the spring is called a foundress. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So a foundress is uh, the spring queen and the gyne is the mated one that's going to overwinter. Yeah, so cool. basically she's a gyne in the in the fall going into diapause and then she's the foundress in the spring. That sounds pretty impressive. Oh, yeah. Foundress, that's yeah, cool. You can almost imagine a little crown on their head. <laughs> <laughs> Probably is. We, don't, we haven't found it yet. Yeah. This is uh, Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras. Dr. John Hunt your host. We're talking about the endangered rusty-patched bumblebee with Dr. Mark McCullough from the Craigbrook Fish Hatchery. He's a wildlife biologist. And you can call. We are live at 469-0500. We're going to talk a little bit more about habitat and then get into what the heck happened. Uh, So I'd like to talk about habitat in two stages. One is the old habitat 100 years ago before industry and and housing and what their and how their habitat has changed now 
So what, what, where were they? What, where were they used to be? What part of the country? Well, the rusty patch bumblebee was found from the Dakotas to Maine, over into New Brunswick a little bit, up to southern Ontario and as far south as Kentucky. So that's sort of the range of the species. And their habitat, uh, the, we, we call them a habitat generalist. So they, all they really need is flowers. It's not like a piping plover that we have in danger down on the coast of Maine that needs sandy beaches, very specialized habitat. These bumblebees really just need a pollen and nectar source. And we had lots of that when we had small uh, family farms that had hedgerows and had uh, lots of uh, flowers growing along the roadsides and apple trees and things like that. There were plenty of pollen sources around. But as we've developed the landscape, particularly in the Midwestern part of the country, uh, the habitat has really been affected greatly. I really don't think that our habitat here in Maine has been affected very much in the last recent <clears throat> decades or even in the last hundred years or so because we still have a relatively rural landscape with a wealth of, of pollen creating flowers on our landscape. So I don't think habitat loss has been a big issue for the rusty patch bumblebee in Maine um, as much as it's been maybe in the Midwest. We'll go along that line uh, in a minute, but we do have a caller, uh, June from Brooklyn. Good morning, June. How are you? I'm great. I just, I am just like awestruck at this program, and um, all that I've learned in the last twenty-seven minutes or or so. And I just want to say this is one of the many reasons why people need to support this wonderful community station that we have here. And I just applaud you guys. I am just so happy you made my day. Thank you, June. You made our day as well. That means means a lot to us. Thank you. And I hope other people are enjoying this program as well. But please call and and ask a question or experience with bumblebees at 469-0500 with Dr. Mark McCullough. We're talking about the endangered rusty patch bumblebee. And we're kind of getting into the habitat, and that kind of gets us into uh, reasons why the the rusty patch is in trouble. Now, in the Midwest, in terms of habitat, habitat's critical in just about all endangered species. You know, where they live, that's what that is. Now, the uh, the crops out in the Midwest have changed, as I understand it. So, like, the flowering crops, the, the flowers are either gone because they've genetically modified them or they're brief. Has that played a big role? In the rusty patch? Yeah, I think in that part of the country it has. And it, and it is playing out not only for the rusty patch bumblebee, but also in a big way for the monarch butterfly, which we're also now considering for listing on our federal oh. endangered species list. So these large uh, industrial farms that have cut the hedgerows, that, that farm right up to the road edges and just really leave no place on the landscape for... Uh, any kind of pollinator plants, that's a real problem for the both the monarch and the bumblebees. But in, here in Maine, I think we still have quite a bit of, of habitat left and, and so therefore have a fairly good potential for maybe finding the rusty patch bumblebee or, or having a role in, in recovering its populations. Well, we're going to talk about some of the other what I call risk factor, factors, mm-hmm. but we have another caller. Uh, Catherine from Hamlet. Oh, just from Appleton. Hi. Oh, Apple- <laughs> Hi, Hi, Catherine. Hi. I recognize your voice. How are Hi. you? I'm. Oh, I'm great. Good. Thank you. I'm, we we made it. It's it's uh, February, almost the end of it. Yes. Um, I wanted to ask. I made up of an observation, and I'm learning so much. And I, I agree with June. This is just just puts it's the frosting on my day. Um, so sometimes I see the bumblebees, and of course I don't know which ones they are, but they're big. And they're just relaxing on this white towel that I have on my porch. And they seem to be grooming themselves. But I guess I know the answer now. They're, they're taking all that pollen that they've gathered all over their bodies and just re, 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 kind of putting it um, towards the, their, their hind feet. 
Is that is that is that what I'm seeing? Right. If you have a chance and you can uh, maybe go to the the computer later today and look up what a pollen basket looks like, it's a specialized segment on one of their hind legs. And, it, and it's sort of a concave little basket, but it's surrounded by these big, long hairs that almost look like a comb. So that's exactly what they're doing is, is combing their fuzzy hair and cleaning that pollen, and it's all gathering in that little basket. Oh, it's lovely to, to observe it and know it. And the other thing is, since we've had you know, this drought going on for years, I always put out a saucer, um, not so that they will drown, but just enough water um, over, you know, in the shade, not in the sun. And I'm amazed about how many how many insects, including bees, just go there and gather it, and they need it. So just putting that out for people. Okay, I'm getting off. Bye. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you. Th- thank you very much for your input. Uh, it's fascinating once you, once you start learning a little bit about an animal, how much mm-hmm. uh, it becomes more meaningful when you, when you see them. Yeah. So the, the habitat... Um, not only lost habitat, but fragmentation of habitat. In other words, it's not a continuous habitat. There's like little islands. Do you think that has happened in Maine? Yeah, to a certain extent. Um, but, well, going back to the colony, uh, the, the worker bees will fly about a kilometer or a half mile from the nest to gather pollen and nectar. And so they need to have some pretty rich pollen and nectar sources. They they need also flowering plants that flower throughout the season. So not just in May, but they also need flowers that come out in August. So at any rate, uh, they'll fly about a half mile from the colony. And, and if the habitat's too fragmented, the, the little patches of flowers are too small and too wide apart. I suppose that they just can't find enough food to really make a go of it and be successful. So a half mile is about in terms of energy consumption. We've got to think about energy consumption and um, and survival. And survival, you, you too. Can't go, you can't go 20 miles because you won't make it. Bad. Right, yeah. Okay, okay. And, so that's and, it. So, so there may be some fragmentation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to get into some other risk factors. We have another caller, Jane. From Portland. Good morning, Jane. Good morning, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, you, uh, you gave me up here. My daughter, one of my daughters, Jane, a teacher, English teacher in uh, Kennebunk. What's your question, young lady? Well, and excuse my stuffiness, I'm getting over a cold. Um, and Mark, I just want to say it's so nice to hear from another humane alum. Wonderful. Yeah, she's a alum too. <clears throat> Uh, yeah, so my question is, if um, here in Maine our habitat has not become as inhospitable to these bees, why are they on our endangered species list? Um, or maybe I'm misunderstanding it if it, it's the national endangered species list, not just for Maine. Yes. And we're going to get perfect. That's a good so leading we question. We can launch right into that. Yes. Then. So they truly are endangered here in Maine and throughout their range. The rusty patch bumblebee, has lost over 90% of its populations, and its range has shrunk by more than 60%. Nationally. Nationally. And it's in real trouble. Here in Maine, I learned that the rusty patch bumblebee was once one of the most abundant bumblebees that we had in the state. And we're fortunate to know that because researchers at the University of Maine have been studying our native bees since back in the 1970s and 80s. So we're fortunate to have a long uh, look back. And it was one of the most abundant bees in the 70s and 80s. And then something happened in the 1990s across the entire country that caused the populations to crash uh, dramatically. And the number of different factors have been proposed, uh, diseases and parasites that have been uh, spread from perhaps honeybees, but even more so from commercial, commercially raised bumblebees are, are one of the factors that, that scientists feel is the cause of the demise. Um, That's a little bug called microsporidium. Right. So any of you who are beekeepers um, know that there's a fungal disease called nosema. 
um, that is common in, in honeybees. It also turns out to be very common in bumblebees as well. And back in the 1980s, uh, they learned how to culture bumblebees and create colonies that could be put in a box and then put in a greenhouse to uh, to pollinate tomatoes. And those bees got out of the greenhouse with the nosema and probably spread it into the native populations of bumblebees. So that's one of the leading hypotheses as to why bumblebees have collapsed and, and many of the species have, have declined is because of the spread of disease. What happens is to interrupt you about that disease that there's spores yes, that get fed the fungal from larvae. Spores. Yeah. And then the, uh, the, the bees get either crippled wings or the queens can't mate. Are those two things that... Yeah. And, Hence the collapse. Yeah, and it actually is like an intestinal disorder within the bee and, and um, their immune systems may be compromised and and because of another factor in our environment, and that's the use of, of pe pesticides. We're not sure which pesticides, but pesticides have increased in the last uh, 10 or 20 years. Another thing that sort of surprised me because I thought we were using more organic means of growing our crops and that was a growing trend, but it actually the growing trend is increasing use of pesticides. We've mm. probably all heard about neonicotinoid pesticides um, and how they are probably affecting our honeybees. They're probably affecting our native bees as well. So you have an animal with a compromised immune system and then it's exposed to diseases like nosema and possibly the, the varroa mites and tracheal mites that honeybees carry as well. And it's just a combination of factors that's probably causing our bumblebee populations to decline pretty dramatically. Wouldn't the herbicides uh -huh. be a factor too? Because they're killing off flowering plants that Right. Bees yeah. So in the Midwest where we have these Roundup Ready uh, crops and, and all of the uh, the pollinating plants are sprayed, uh, that's a factor as well. Well, thank you, Janie. We'll continue to um, uh, discuss this with some more risk factors. Uh, but I have great. to not knock you off because Jocko from Abbott wants to ask a question. Oh, great. All right. Thank you very much. Okay. Show. See you soon. Jocko from Abbott. Uh, how, are, how are you uh, today? Uh, good. Um, yeah, even along what you were just saying, a lot of power companies along the power lines, they spray like a cord arsenal from, you know, which is uh, made by Monsanto. And that probably affects the bees and that's all over the whole country. But uh, one question I have is I'm wondering uh, what can we do to help them thrive? Like are there houses we could build for them or you know uh things we could plant you're reading I mean, my did say the purple asters or whatever you're reading my my mind we're going to spend the last uh, 15 minutes or so talking exactly about that we just wanted to get right. so that's perfect a perfect leading question thank you jocko all right, all right. It, thank you very much this is a great show oh great thank you um and that's what we want to spend the last part of the show is is what we're trying to do to to get these bees back, but any other thoughts on your um, on the reasons for extinction, like climate change? Yeah, that's certainly in all of our documents. Is that the climate is changing, and and we just don't have the research to know how those changes might be affecting the bee. It's pretty apparent that the populations collapsed in the 1990s, and that overlaps almost exactly with the introduction and commercial use of bumblebees that were infected with nosema. And so that seems to be the leading hypothesis at this point in time. But all these other factors can be playing a role as well. Uh, we're just not really sure about climate change and how it might exactly be affecting our bumblebees. And, and it could be more subtle with um, the climate change because of slower, uh, warmer winters or colder summers, things like that, which affects the plants. Mm -hmm. So that would – you're right. I think that would be harder to pinpoint. But I think uh, we can't ignore that, and I know you guys aren't um, in terms of um, – of how it affects the populations. And 
there may be other bacteria or parasites that haven't been looked at or, or found. Well, yeah, the universities continue to do research on our native bee populations, and they've documented over a hundred uh, various diseases and parasites in our native bees here in Maine. And probably many of those can be traced back either to uh, honeybees or some of these commercial bumblebees. No doubt there's, there's natural diseases and parasites in our native bees, but some of these things have been brought in and our species aren't adapted to them and are susceptible to these new diseases or parasites when they're introduced. And also, uh, would um, the genetic health is that compromised, um, and and why would that be? Uh, you have le- less diversity. The fragmented habitats may cause more inbreeding. Has that been looked at? Is that a factor? Yeah, this, this is a really interesting and unique factor related to bumblebees that I'd never encountered with any other endangered species that I've worked on. And this is a concept that as the Bumblebee colonies, imagine a landscape where you might have 25 or 30 colonies scattered around different locations over maybe 10 or 20 square miles, and uh, they're all an interbreeding population. But as the numbers decrease, what happens with rusty patch bumblebees and a couple of other bumblebee species is that you start to get inbreeding. And it's a it's a it's a process called haplodiploidy, and we won't get into the science of that. Uh, but at any rate, because of that, uh, the colonies actually start to to founder and not do very well. Uh, the queens, instead of laying workers, will be laying um, male bees or drones, and eventually the colonies fizzle out and collapse. So where you might have had 20 colonies, you drop to 15, drop to 10, and then you collapse to zero very quickly because of this inbreeding that goes on. So you can envision these other factors affecting the bees, and as their numbers or colonies dwindle, and then then they drop into this major uh, extinction vortex and collapse. And that's what we're trying to prevent. Yes. And uh, let's talk about that. Prevent. What do you? What do we? What do we need to do? Our listeners, uh, I think, before we run out of time, get into uh, backyard uh, projects that that our listeners can do at home today. Uh, to help our rusty patched. That's the first thing, then we get into the other things we want to do. Yeah, so there's a lot of ways that the public can participate in bumblebee conservation. And uh, one of the the really exciting things going on in Maine is that Maine Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife has been uh, sponsoring the Maine Bumblebee Atlas. And that's a citizen science uh, effort to uh, uh, have Members of the public sign up, get a little bit of training, get a free butterfly net, collecting materials, and actually go out and help us understand uh, the status of our bumblebee populations in Maine. This has been going on for the last three summers, and there are two more summers to go, and they'll be training new volunteers this spring. But there's over 250 people in Maine that are participating in the Maine Bumblebee Atlas. You can go online and find out all about that. But that's a way, if you're interested, to either go out and capture some specimens or to photograph specimens and help us uh, figure out what bumblebees are still here and, and what their status are and maybe find a rusty patch bumblebee. One has not been found yet um, by a volunteer, but, but that's a possibility. And it's important to for our listeners to know, and they would they would learn this in the training, is that in certain areas, Stockton Springs is one, is you cannot uh, have a lethal specimen collection. In other words, uh, sacrifice the bee to collect it. It has to be a picture, uh, but other parts of the state is lethal collection is okay. Right, so some of it's lethal collection. And people don't take very many bees. It's just one of each kind that you see. So it's not really affecting these populations. And you're only taking worker bees that, as we said earlier, might only live to be two, you know, for two or three weeks. So it doesn't have a population level effect. But where we last saw the rusty patch bumblebee in Maine, which was in 2009 in the Stockton Springs area, in that area, area, 
um, we were just asking people to photograph bumblebees. And we can, we can do a pretty good job of identifying species from good photographs as well. And a good photograph is not hard with a uh, bumblebee busy on a flower. You just go right over it and make sure the wings are apart a little bit. You just take a good picture in, in good light. And they don't bother you if you don't bother them. So you can probably get a pretty good picture. I yeah, understand. folks are doing fantastic photography with just cell phone uh, uh, with bumblebees. So, yeah, you can do that. So you can become part of the um, sur- survey, is that what it's called? Yeah, the Maine Bumblebee the- Atlas Survey. Okay. Yeah. Okay, and then another thing you can do, let's say in your backyard, what can you do? Well, the other thing is we're, we're really promoting people to plant native species of pollinating plants, flowers, trees, shrubs um, that uh, are good floral uh, resources for bumblebees. And you can do this at a small scale, um, just a couple of plants or one tree, or you can go um, to the extent of, of planting acres of these kind of plants or allowing a meadow to go fallow and, uh, and produce a, you know, a great nectar source with goldenrod and other things like that. So to help promote that, the Natural Resources Conservation Service of Maine, which is another federal agency in USDA, has uh, a Maine pollinator protection project that they're starting this spring. They've just hired a new biologist out of the University of Maine who is a bee expert. His name is Eric Venturini, and he and NRCS are looking for landowners to plant pollinators or to promote pollinator projects, and they've just uh, announced their new program and we'll be selecting a group of landowners to work with this summer. And if that's successful, hopefully we can add some more acres of, of uh, pollinator habitat, quality habitat for these species. Didn't they get like $80,000 or something? Yeah, so uh, they'll be spending at least $80,000 yeah. this summer. And if we're successful, we'll be increasing that in coming years. That's exciting. So not only uh, – I don't want to, I don't want to uh, leave Lori on the – um, line here. Lori from Richmond, we'll get back to that. Uh, Rockland. Lori from Rockland. Good morning. How are you? Hi. G- good. Good. It's, this is a great show because I'm, I'm a gardener, landscaper, so I'm out there looking at the bees all the time. Oh, good. Um, but I wanted to let everybody know there's there's a ground cover aster that blooms even later than the natives that the the, the bees just love. I mean, they're, they just almost, you can hear them mm buzzing as you approach the plant and it's called a sneakitter aster don't ask me to spell it okay i was, I was just about to because <laughs> I've, I've been i've been sitting here scribbling on a piece of paper and i can't i it's okay uh, it's well, like s-c-h-n-e is this an exotic it's not exotic it's actually i saw them a couple years ago they've been introducing it at the um booth bay um botanical gardens so it's it's been around for a while, I said, and I've been growing it for almost twenty years. Good. So we, we want to stick with the natives, right? The native plants. Well, I I believe. Well, if if um, it's not invasive, I've never had any problems with it. It's um, but it's just such a a bee attractor. A bee magnet. <laughs> yeah, I mean it, it 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 blooms all throughout October. Oh, cool. Well, thank yeah. you. Thank you yeah. very much, Lori. I appreciate it. Okay. You're welcome. Yeah, so the, there's fantastic resources on the Internet uh, concerning native pollinating plants. It's really become a, an exciting new area of conservation, and uh, lots of folks are getting into it to help species like the rusty patch bumblebee and monarch. But all of our native bees and all of our native pollinators are really important to us. Um, you know, we often get asked as endangered species biologists, well, why protect this thing? What role does it have in our environment or functioning ecosystems? With bees, you can you can show people, tell people right away. I mean, they have a, a, they get it. a, a very important role. We don't get vegetables out of our garden unless we have native bees out there. Or blueberries or potatoes. Or squash or Any tomatoes. Of- Everything in our garden that we harvest, most except for the root crops, uh, are are pollinated by bees and 
one of the most fantastic pollinating plants I had in my yard last summer was I let some leeks go by and the leeks flowered and they have this big globe-like flower and they were just drooping with bumblebees and in fact I saw one of the rarer bumblebees a cousin to the rusty patch it's called the yellow banded bumblebee so um, plants and you can go online to like the willow pussy willow is a a great one fantastic yeah and we don't have to go into all the plants but another thing you can do is uh, increase habitat for nesting by uh, for instance not raking like leaving piles of leaves or not mowing certain parts is that something that people can do yeah so these bees are looking for places that they can get down create their colony for the summer so brush piles uh not cleaning up uh, hedgerows, leaving them sort of a messy, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, leaf piles, uh, compost piles. Uh, we, we know that bumblebees will go into a compost oh. pile. It probably isn't a good thing when I turn over my compost <laughs> pile, but, but at any rate, they will use those. So, so keeping a, an untidy yard – much to the dismay of my neighbors, has helped me to really promote native pollinators. Well, I think uh, up here in this neck of the woods, I don't think that's a, a bad thing. I think a lot of people will probably do that. And you can actually make a nest. Yeah, there are nesting boxes. I, yeah, we don't know that. a lot about that, but over in Great Britain, they've been doing that. And uh, and it may be a way to provide them a little nesting place for their colonies. And you can look online uh, for the nesting bo- box. Um, mm-hmm. I found it. I think listeners can, can probably find it online. But it is there is a nesting box. It's kind of interesting. Um, so is there anything you want to add before we end the show? And, and what do you? what's your goal for this year? Those are the two questions, the two yeah. things. So our goal this summer at Fish and Wildlife Service is we're going to be working with the State Wildlife Agency, and we're going to be out uh, in the Penobscot Bay region trying to relocate population of rusty patch bumblebee. We're hoping we can find them. Um, I sort of have my doubts but uh, because none of the volunteers have found them yet, but that's what we'll be doing this summer. Down the road, we'll be developing a recovery plan for the rusty patch bumblebee, and maybe if it's gone from Maine, uh, there's a possibility of, of reintroducing this species. Because um, there are some in other ahead. parts of the United States. Yeah, so in the Midwest, we still have functioning populations that possibly could be a, a source for bumblebees to reintroduce here, where the habitat is still pretty good. It would be like the new turkey. Possibly. <laughs> Turkeys introduced, and your, your colleague, uh, Brad Allen, was uh, instrumental in that. He was here for the show, so maybe you can be the new... Uh, Introducer for a new species. That'd be exciting. It would be. So those are your main goals for this year. It's just to try to find it. Try to find it. But also you're, you're looking at long-term some kind of, um, what did you say? Uh, a reintroduction re- or, or a recovery plan. Recovery so plan. A, a real long-term look at what can we do to bring the populations of this bee back to, to what close to what they were. Uh, before this collapse occurred in the 1990s. Of course, when you see these, if you find these populations, they try to look for the microsporidium, the uh, um, the, the fungi, yeah, to so see I think what's going we, on with that. Yeah, if we found a population, we can work with landowners to try to get good pollinator sources there. We can work with the University of Maine and others to, to try to do some research to understand how these bees are doing, how healthy they are. And why are not. they surviving? And Yeah, and and that would help us, you know, to better understand the kind of things we could do to recover their populations. Maybe the fragmented habitat actually is a double-edged sword. Maybe the isolating species are keeping the that parasite from crossing over to other Yeah, it's uh, possible nests. that we have so many species of native bees that they can probably transmit these diseases oh, pretty rapidly so across the landscape. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, that was... I was trying to think. <laughs> That's a trying. good thing. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Mark McCullough, this has been a wonderful show, and I hope all of my listeners are going to go out and uh, help the Rusty Patch try to find them and try to plant, because whatever you plant will help other bees as well. Oh, certainly. And I want you to come back. Maybe we can talk about bald eagles and the shorebirds. Will you do that if I can get you? Sure. Yeah, you're you're a busy to. man. This has been fun, and it's been nice to have listeners out there who have – called in with some great, great comments and questions. And any last comments? 
Do you have any? Anything? No, other than okay. thanks, and uh, you know, we're all looking forward to warmer weather and and the first day of spring when we'll see a, a bumblebee out there Can't flying. Wait. They're so nice. Yeah, such a great great critters. So this is Dr. John Hunt for Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras. Thank you, Dr. Cola. Till next time. People on the coast of Maine are focusing their attention on seaweed. People are harvesting it, eating it, selling it, growing it, even going to court over who owns it. But what exactly is seaweed, and what is its role in a healthy coastal marine environment? This is Natalie Springle from the University of Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations. On our next program, we will explore the world of seaweed in the intertidal zone, how other species, including humans, interact with seaweed, and what seaweed can tell us about changes in the Gulf of Maine. To help explore the ecological dimensions of seaweed, we'll talk with Jesse Mullen of Maine Maritime Academy, 